podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. It was only eight years ago that Elizabeth Debicki got off the plane in LA for the first time, and that was to audition for Baz Luhrmann. That unconventional audition got her a lead role in The Great Gatsby, opposite Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire. Since then, Elizabeth's become one of the go-to actresses of her generation. She's been mentored by Kate Blanchett, cast by director Steve McQueen in Widows, and also won a Logie back in Australia for her part in the Kettering incident. Throw in being directed by Simon Baker in Breath, giving voice to a bunny in Peter Rabbit and getting covered in gold paint to play the villain in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and I'm tired just mentioning all her work. But Elizabeth did manage to squeeze me in for a chat during a quick trip to LA for the Widows premiere. Here's Elizabeth. Welcome to Aussies in Hollywood and um, it's exciting that you're here in LA very briefly because you're always somewhere else working busily Um, and you're here talking about Widows. So first of all, I just want to congratulate you. What a great film and what a great performance. But it looks so um, serious and yet from what I gather, you guys had a blast making that movie, right? Yeah, I mean, we we had an incredible time. It was such such a bonded communal... And, and genuinely fun experience. But I think that when that said, the flip side of it was that it was definitely the most challenging, provocative piece of work I've ever made. And it definitely, I mean, provocative is the right word because it really provoked a lot out of me. And that's to do with Steve as a director and what he, how he works and what he asks. Um, and also simultaneously that he asks you for the truth, but because Steve is the person he is and, and he really is this remarkable human being. Um, We're talking about trust, Steve McQueen, by the way. 12 the Years a Slave, brilliant director. Steve McQueen. Um, you, yeah, you just feel this desire to, to, to really give him those pieces of your soul. But I think the reason we had so much fun on this set was because the material, because the content of it is quite dark. And it's funny when I think about the the most sort of demonstrative version of that is that we were shooting this heist. It's a heist film. I I mean, it's many things, but it is also fundamentally a heist film. And the heist happens between Viola Davis's character, Michelle Rodriguez's character and myself. We are the three widows who go into this this house to to complete this heist and try and pull it off. And... We were shooting that sequence, which has many different pieces in it, as action sequences often do. We shot it over the course of about two weeks through the night. So night shooting is such an interesting experience anyway as an actor because you... I mean, it's like it's it's like being jet lagged, you know. Your your circadian rhythm is way out, and I think it does something to your brain, you know, and your body. And just sort of the more you 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 head towards exhaustion, and then you put the adrenaline of of, of completing these stages of a heist together, um, repetitively, you know. For instance, there's a sequence where we go upstairs. I mean, we must have gone up those stairs. I don't know how many times. Sixty five times, you know. Um, 
So you just start to go a bit mad, really. And also, it's super adrenaline fueled. And I'm really suggestible. And I was really anxious the whole time. I mean, I basically, we would get home at about 6am from the from shooting whatever we'd shot that day. And I would just lie in bed while the sun came up and my heart would be thumping with adrenaline because I was so, I'm just, I've never done an action sequence like that before, you know, whereas Michelle and Viola really like had it down there, much tougher than I am. But we would sometimes, you know, at 3 a.m. And, and they'd be turning the camera around and we'd have a half hour break or something, just whip out some Michael Jackson, roll our heist suits down and we would just have to have a boogie. And it was just sort of like this really demonstrative version of trying to get some of the terror out and sort of get some of the darkness out and... Um, you know, Steve would join in, and I mean, I've I've never been on. But a I set bet where the guys happened. in Ocean's Eleven never did that. I really don't think they did. I think it was very, very particular to our set. Um, well, um, you you've already got the most incredible resume, and I wanted to go back to the beginning because you you also you weren't born in Australia, but of course we claim you. Um, you grew up in Paris and moved to Melbourne at age five. Was that right? Can you talk a little bit about how that shaped you and your family background and what your early exposure was to film and TV? I think that making a significant life change at that age is really interesting and I think that peripatetic childhoods are quite common among act amongst actors, I've noticed. Um, and I suppose when I think back and analyse it, which of course you don't do when you're a child or you know in your teens or something. But when you get to the ripe old age of fill in blank twenties, and you think, hmm, I wonder whether that really had an influence on how I act as a human being. Um, I, I guess that you know for, it was twofold for me too because it was a language thing because obviously I spoke French first then English. Then when we moved to Australia, I actually stopped speaking French. Uh, woke up one day, I of course don't remember this, but apparently I just woke up one day and refused to speak French. And I suppose that that was my, my sort of little five-year-old, six-year-old's version of just please, God, let me assimilate. I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the odd one out here. And I mean, children can be cruel and they can ostracize very easily so I suppose my instinct was to just be like everybody else um and and I and I guess maybe who knows but I I suppose there's a there's a likelihood that what that taught me was how to to be what other people need me to be in the in the moment um which is essentially my job <laughs> but I don't know whether that's linked to you know starting primary school in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne but um I could probably draw a, a link if I wanted to um and my exposure to film was well you were really in the dance world from the beginning both your parents were dancers right they were yeah so my exposure to film was really not as extensive as my exposure to live um, theatre which is really unusual I think it's usually the other way around and I'm very blessed that that was the case I mean my father worked in a theatre when we were in Australia so um, we would often go and sit in the back of the theatre in the lighting box and and we would watch shows I mean god I don't know if I'm allowed to say that but um, we we did and the, the beauty of that was if I really really loved the ballet I could go five or six times and I would and I and I that was from probably about the age of eight and so I I 
was exposed to a lot of theatre. Um, not a lot of spoken theatre, though. Not a lot of plays, a lot of dance. Whatever company came in, I mean, they, if it was some really obscure sort of Israeli, you know, contemporary company or something, my mother would still take us. We saw every ballet possible. You know, I've seen every ballet in the canon a hundred times. We saw opera, we saw everything. I remember the first time I really saw theatre, though, and remember seeing it and and was old enough to really sort of grasp the difference of the effect it had on me was a production of of the um, of, of King Lear, which I think was also touring as the Seagull um, with Sir Ian McKellen. And I guess I would have been about 14, 15. And I remember sort of sitting there and sort of thinking, isn't it bizarre that I never sought out the words in theatre before and, and just because I just was exposed to so much dance. Um, That's not a bad one to start with. Not Sir a bad, Ian McKellen. Not a bad one. Not a bad one at the at the Art Centre in Melbourne and I'll never forget it. Um and then, you know, in terms of film, I actually grew up with a, a lot of old Hollywood um, playing. My, I mean, a lot of Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire. I mean, a lot of dance, a lot of musicals. I mean, I probably watched, you know, West Side Story with Natalie Wooden at a, a thousand times, a cabaret a thousand. I mean, I watched cabaret when I was far too young to know what the hell cabaret was, you know, but I could but I could do all, all of Liza. Um, so I think, you know, it was a really, I was very blessed in the sort of ex, the range of exposure I had and, and, and how unusual it was. And also my mother's insistence that we, that we saw everything. Mm. Yeah. So you, you were really on a path to become a dancer. You, you danced on every day, mm. you said previously, mm. for how many years? I mean, probably from the age of about six to 15, 16. And so what happened at 15, 16? Well, it was, a, I mean, there was, a, there was a few sort of things that shifted. Um, one was that I was really, I was actually, I was a real nerd and I was a real academic when I was a teenager. I, I, um, I went to a really academic high school and, and I... In Melbourne? In Melbourne. Hunting Tower, Hunting Tower School in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, and and I was really focused on my studies. I thought I was got I thought that was sort of maybe what I was gonna pursue more actively. You know, and I also when I was about fourteen I remember going to the a summer school at the Australian Ballet School and I was taller than the teachers. Um, I do remember that because we had our photos taken with them one lunch and it was sort of a big deal with the Polaroid or pol Polaroid camera and I remember looking at the Polaroid standing by the vending machine sort of going, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think this is going to work. Um, I also didn't have the turnout. I didn't. I don't naturally have the turnout. I had lots of other things. So, I mean, being a dancer is, you know, you almost have to have like, uh, it's almost like you need to, you need to fit all those body parts. And if you don't have this or that, you can, I mean, and some dancers do work their whole life to sort of strengthen one thing that's missing. But if you don't naturally have it all, you know, it's hard. So I also then went more into contemporary dance, which I loved because it was all parallel, which for those who weren't, you know, in a ballet class every day of their life means that you turn your feet sort of straight, not outwards. Okay. Um, so that was sort of a relief to me. But then I guess probably linked to sort of seeing that production of those Chekhov plays, but also just, you know, I read a lot and I, and I was really in, into, you know, I mean, I was a nerdy 15-year-old, so I was really into poetry and, and, and started reading more plays and just fundamentally I think I just started looking for sort of words rather than dance. Mm. Um, and then I finished school 
uh, early uh, ish, you know, a year earlier than most people finish high school, and, and I auditioned for VCA. So that was when I was 17 and I just got straight in. So and it's a Victorian College of the Arts. Yeah, in Melbourne. And that's yeah. sort of just where I didn't really look back after that. Now you were you were like the ducks of the school, weren't you? I heard you got they like left. perfect scores I in know. several subjects. And you did you oh. get into law school? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was a I was very, very ambitious about my studies. You know, I was just, I just was trying to explain to someone the other day, everybody was going to parties on the weekend and I had just flown in from wrapping a movie and I was tired and someone said something about social life and I was like, well, I, I never really had one and I never really did when I was a teenager. I was so, I was so focused on studying, studying and um, yeah, I got perfect, embarrassingly, I got perfect scores. I shouldn't say, I should be proud of myself. I got perfect scores in drama and English um, and I think maybe history <laughs> wow that is something to be proud I mean, of yeah, I mean yeah but I'm wondering then if your parents thought look at those scores and you got into law school and then suddenly what did you come home one day and say change my mind gonna be an actor I mean it was sort of that drastic I I remember about a year before finishing high school stomping into the kitchen one day and my mother was standing there and I just said why did we not enroll me in acting classes it was just completely out of the blue it was like it had struck me like a lightning bolt and I went oh my god I've missed the boat I'm 16 and I've never been to acting class and I stomped in and she just looked at me and went what and I take the bins out or something and I was like oh okay sure you know I mean it was just paid no attention to um because I mean what are you going to say when your 16 year old daughter says you've ruined my non-existent career (laughs) um uh but then you know, I auditioned for VCA and NIDA when I was, when I finished school, which a lot of kids do, you know, when you finish high school. And so I do sometimes wonder about um, if I hadn't have gotten straight in, I'm sure I would have gone to, to university and studied something and maybe life would have taken a, a different turn. But I doubt it because I'm, was, I was pretty one-tracked. So the moment you got there, you knew you were in the right place. Yeah, it was definitely the most the most um, comfortable I ever felt in a in an environment. I felt I remember feeling a huge amount of relief that um, people were as uh, what's the word odd, I guess, just a sort of odd bunch of people looking for something um, odd in the sense of slightly unusual you know I mean I remember being in high school and just thinking you know I went to school with lovely people who are lovely people but thinking how odd I felt you know and Mm. that I couldn't really I had a great drama teacher in high school I was really lucky and and lovely friends but I was just always a little bit um it didn't really quite fit in and then you go to an I think when you're somebody who's meant to be an actor and you find yourself in an acting school those people feel relief because you feel suddenly like you you can be seen and heard and you found your tribe you find your tribe yeah and and you're learning the things that you actually are really interested in Mm. it's funny I've interviewed a lot of people that went to NIDA and WAPA but not many that went to drama school in in Melbourne I'm Mm. a Melbourne girl too and Mm. I know VCA's really great Mm. but I wonder what what was that experience like what do you what do you look back now and realize that you got from that experience that's really made a difference in your life I mean it it totally I guess it's not for everyone a lot of of actors don't go to drama school right right 
a lot of actors don't. A lot of my very dear friends who are wonderful actors never went to drama school um, and that's exactly what they should have done. You know, when I think back to VCA, I, I'm eternally grateful for the training I got there. I was so lucky that the way the methodology that the school taught suited how I needed to learn and it wasn't the case for everybody I mean you can never please you know everybody but because I had come from such a physical background as a dancer and the methodology that was taught in the school was so physical I mean it was so much about not about sort of freeing people from being very cerebral about language and putting the language in the body and and feeling a kind of connection with it that was to do with authenticity for yourself um, about uh, sort of commitment to action being the sort of producer of truth on stage I suppose and all those things made sense to me because of where I had come from as a dancer and um, I also had excellent teachers I was surrounded by really wonderful, wonderful people. I made good friends, wonderful relationships. Um, I, and, and there are sort of kernels of truth of, of what I was taught in certain classes from certain teachers that uh, stay with me to this day. And the process that we were taught to sort of use, I use, you know. And so I am somebody who really went to acting school took every little bit that stuck to me. I mean, I think I think with any training, especially art training, you know, vocational artists training like that, it's about what what sticks to you organically sticks and sort of won't really ever leave you because there's a re the reason it sticks is because you can produce something from that. Um and and whatever that is, it's it's if it really works for you then it just becomes part of how you do your craft, I suppose. Um so, and the other thing was I was 17 and I just, just finished high school. So I was in, I was perfect sponge mode. I was not bucking any authority. I was not, you know, I mean, I remember going, a lot of my friends who went to school with me at VCA, they were, you know, my age now, you know, they were, they were 28 when they went to school. And if someone dragged me back into a three year course where you had to start school at eight and finish at six every day, I mean, I would struggle with that now, you know. Um, so I was just, I was, it was really, I, I was just really lucky, really, that the timing worked out and I had great teachers. And then you had a small role in A Few Best Men. I did with but, Stephen Elliott. But the, but the Great Gatsby happened, like that was your first yeah. movie role, really, other than that. Yeah, I mean, Stefan's movie came along... Um, I think it was maybe like the first um, thing that I went in and read for when I was in Sydney and I was I think I was there for my agent showcase probably, something like that. And um, I was so grateful for that job because I, I didn't have any money <laughs> and I remember I really had to pay my rent. Um, and... And then I and then I got a and job. Wait, you were looking for an agent? Is that what you were doing? Well, up there? I had I had just signed with an agency mm. there, which you know when when people finish drama school they often do these showcases where yeah. they, you know, it's sort of like a, it's sort of like being a piece of meat and you go up and you um, <laughs> do this thing and you know all the agents are there. I mean it was it's just utter terror. There was I mean it was just 
horrendous the, the sort of pressure of it you just think if I don't get this agent today my life is over I will never work and you know um I got it I after I did a few best men I got a job at the Melbourne Theatre Company and I was in rehearsal for that when I went to audition for Baz no wait this was your first time ever in Hollywood was when you got off the plane to audition for Baz Luhrmann for My a leading first time role in America. In the great... Oh wow! I'd never even been to America, the land of dreams. Well, what was um, that like? <laughs> I mean, it was surreal. I was. I mean, I think when you're when you're young and you travel, I traveled to Europe to see my family before as a, as a kid a few times, but I just remember the jet lag just feeling like someone had dropped me on my head, and I was in this hotel. I had no idea where I was. Which still to this day happens often as an actor, by the way. You sort of land in a city at, at 11 p.m. and you get you go to a hotel and you. it's only when you open your curtains the next morning you think, okay, this is what fill-in-blank looks like. It's a very surreal way to travel. But um, I remember the hotel I was staying on was on Sunset Boulevard and I remember opening up the curtains that morning completely disoriented and all I saw were billboards and I just remember thinking, what is this? It was like the Truman Show. I mean, it made no sense to me. It was just these huge, I remember it was an ad for Ray-Ban or something. And I, I mean, it was so surreal. And I also, I have a few memories of that audition. One was that CM, Catherine Martin Baz's wife, just the legendary CM, had put two, one was Miu Miu and one was a Prada dress hanging in my wardrobe. And they were both sort of flapper cut, that really 20s drop mm. waist sequin dresses and I remember they were just hanging in this wardrobe and I had never I'd never touched anything like I'd never touched a dress you know like that before why would I have you know touched Prada before I know it sounds like the holy grail Prada <laughs> I mean I just wore them the other night also very sequiny um I still kind of feel like that when when someone gives me a beautiful dress but um I remember that I remember it was the first time that I was a sort of semi-adult I mean I was 20 one. I remember ordering a lot of room service. I remember sitting there in my bed sort of eating pizza and having a beer and just thinking, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and knowing the next morning I had to get up and audition for Baz. And um, I remember the morning of the Baz had sent a makeup artist to my room. I'd never had my makeup done before. Um, and this very sweet makeup artist was doing my face uh, kind of a bit 20, so we sort of penciled the brows a bit and, and he was going to do a red lip. And then there was this knock at the door and I went up to open it and I looked in the little keyhole <laughs> and Baz, like, his face just loomed in towards <laughs> the, the little, you know, the yeah. little door peep peephole. peephole thing. And I just almost sort of took a step back going, oh, my God, it's Baz Lerman. And I opened the door and he he sort of, swept in and sat down on the end of the bed and just watched this poor makeup artist paint a red lip on me. <laughs> and I've never, I, I, I'm, I remember just channeling in all that man's terror in that moment, just thinking, my God, this is, a, this is just a terrifying morning for you. And then we traipsed over to the chateau, which was across the road, and Toby came and met us there. And it was just a sort of wonderful Toby two Maguire. hours. Toby Maguire, yeah. yeah. Two hours where... Baz just had a handheld camera and Ronna Cress, who was the casting agent, wonderful Ronna Cress, followed us around. We were jumping up 
on the bed. There was pillow fights. There was a golf club. There was a fake cigarettes. We sat on the couch like it was a horse and cart and it was just completely surreal. And that was the audition the wow. first time. And then, and then I, I am sure that that night, that was probably in the afternoon, that night I got back on the plane and went back to rehearsal in Melbourne. And, and I really did think I'd sort of snapped the tether about a month and hadn't heard anything and just thought, well, I guess I, I suppose that didn't really happen because it was just didn't really make any sense. And then you found out you got the job and, and suddenly yeah. you're on an amazing Baz Luhrmann set. In with Sydney, in Sydney, Australia. With Leonardo DiCaprio and Toby Maguire and Carrie and Mulligan and Carrie and and Joel and yeah. Joel, yeah. yeah. So th- did 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 it feel um, intimidating? Yes, I remember being. But here's the thing: I think when you're 21, and and it's your first real, you know, it was, it was like my first real rehearsal for a film. Let's say. I had nothing to compare it to and in a way it kind of freed me of terror because I just went with it. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I mean, we had rehearsal in New York and I remember I'd never been to New York before and I was in a hotel and walked over to my rehearsal room the the rehearsal rooms were these amazing warehouse space you know on the 32nd floor of some building on Broadway and I remember going out onto the balcony with Baz that day and the whole thing was just like a fever dream I mean also making that film was like a fever dream um and I mean in the truest way that the things that I remember are so vivid they just sort of they will never leave me like I remember that first lunch having being standing out on that balcony with Carrie and looking at New York I'd never seen it before you know I just went with it because it just felt, it felt like a gift. It felt like a fluke. It felt like a, uh, like it wasn't really happening. Um, so the joy outweighed the terror constantly and on the set too. And also that set was so extravagant in the scale of it. But I didn't know that. I didn't, you know, I've certainly never been on a set that, that compares to yeah. the amount of extras or the, the the amount of cameras I mean the last movie I shot that I just wrapped in Italy we shot the whole movie with one camera you know but Baz I mean we must have but you were with Mick Jagger and Donald Sutherland let's let's mention true. that too. and I also will say when they were on set we had two cameras but <laughs> just, when it was just me we just had one camera um they were like don't don't shoot her too much we don't need that much of it um but, you know, we must have had four cameras on Baz. Oh, who knows? And, and they were always on a crane. And I remember one day that the, there was a – so funny because I just saw Joel Edgerton's here promoting Boy Erased and I just saw him outside the, in the corridor. And and now I'm just remembering this weird moment where the, the camera was on this, this sort of in, incredible crane arm thing that looked – I mean, it looked like a dinosaur to me. It's sort of this prehistoric thing that would rove across the camera. It was a, it was a big lunch scene. And I remember one day it just sort of malfunctioned and I just sort of lurched out at Joel and he was wearing this like beautiful baby pink um, Brooks Brothers shirt. He had a, this big cup of like this latte in his hand. I was like, probably doesn't drink latte. Sorry, Joel, I don't know what you drink. I don't want to, probably not a latte, probably a very manly cup of coffee. And he, it spilled everywhere. And I remember everyone freaking out, like the 800 spare shirts coming out. I mean, weird little memories like that. <laughs> well, I mean, there's... The list of movies you've made in 
see, between 2015 and 2018, I couldn't almost fit them all in here if we asked even one question about each of them. I'm just going to go through them all and then go back to a few. But you did The Man From Uncle, Guy Ritchie, Everest with another Aussie, Jason Clark, mm-hmm. Macbeth with uh, Aussie director Justin Curzel and amazing Michael Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2017, you did The Night Manager, which I believe with Australians in Film, I met you there for the Breakthrough Awards and the lovely Hugh Laurie was there to support you. That's right. That was great. Um, And The Kettering Incident, which got a Logie nomination and was, I binge watched that over here, was excited that those kind of things now end up on TV in America. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume Mm 2, The Tale, Laura Dern, the Cloverfield Paradox, the Netflix uh, Super Bowl surprise, mm-hmm. um, Breath with Simon Baker, mm-hmm. Peter Rob, Peter Rabbit, Mopsy, and then Widows. I don't know if I've left any out in terms of movies, but that's a hell of a lot of work in a few years. Did it sort of, from Great Gatsby, did it feel obvious to you that that kind of an explosion was going to happen? Or what did you think would happen after that movie? Here's the funny... Well, when you read it out like that, I now realise why I have no life. Um, so that's a relief. At least I've been doing something. Um, I... When I finished Baz's film, the next job I did was um, The Maids that I did at Well, Sydney I was going to get to... Yeah. Right. The next thing you did was actually you went against all of that and you... But it was with Kate Blanchett and Isabel Sydney Theatre. Yeah. yeah. And it was The Maids. And, yeah. Yeah. But, but what I was going to say was I went and did this amazing, incredible play um, with Benedict Andrews, wonderful Benedict Andrews directing us, who's just wrapped a phenomenal sounding film here in L.A. Um, uh, but I couldn't, you know, I didn't really get many auditions straight after Gatsby and, and it was about a year. I mean, the film took a little while to come out and it was I was in this sort of, which a lot of actors, you know, it happens to a lot of us that you make, if you're fortunate enough to get, uh, you know, a great part in a big film, but then it takes a little while to come out, you're kind of in a funny limbo. And I really remember that specifically, just feeling like I it was very, I, I, w- I would take meetings here in LA, but no one had seen anything. I, I It was a blessing when that play came up because I hadn't worked for a good while. Wow. Um, and I and I remember doing that play, and and then whilst I was doing that play in Sydney, sending a self tape off to Guy, and that's how I got the Man from Uncle. Mm. Um, was Kate helpful to you during that time, Kate Blanchett? I mean, Kate was an incredible mentor while we were doing the play. Kate is just, I mean, I looked up to her since I can remember. Um, so to just be in the same room with her was overwhelming to me in the beginning. Um, qu- like quite literally, I, could, I literally couldn't get, um, I was all I, croaky, I couldn't speak. I mean, it was just sort of so overwhelming to be sat in a room with your idol and sort of have to do the read through of the script on the first day. I mean, just crazy. But um, because Kate is such a, such a wonderfully grounded human being too, that, that thing around her dissolved you know slowly slowly I still you know I saw her two nights ago we were honoring her at the Britannia Awards BAFTA in LA and I still when I see her sometimes I mean she's just luminous you know she just really is 
she's a movie star, you know, but she's also Kate, who's just this kind of incredibly, it sounds weird to say, but really normal person, you know. So working with her was a blessing because I, I got to watch her process. I got to I got to also observe somebody who has this incredible status within our industry but but keeps it very real. Um, you know, was it was, you know, dropping her kids off at school, sort of getting, if she could, getting like a half an hour nap, coming to rehearsal, doing this, that, that, you know, and the other and still, and promoting this film and that film. And, you know, for instance, I remember when, when we were doing um, the play, um, um, Gatsby was opening at Cannes and for a second it looked like I might not be able to go. And I remember Kate looking at me one lunch and just saying, you have to go, you have to go. We'll make, we'll make it so that you can go. Um, you know, and that kind of support is sort of, so important when you're young and you and you don't know what your priorities should be. Yeah. Um, um, I got lost in my love for Kate. What am I talking about? Uh, well, you were talking about how you did that. You were oh, waiting for the movie Gatsby, to come out. That's right. And I was asking if Kate had been yeah. sort of yeah, said, she, don't worry, it'll happen or, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, but as much as anybody tells you that, be it your agent yeah. or, or Kate or your mum, you know, you still just don't know. I mean, but I still feel like I, I just left this film set three, four days ago in Italy and it was such a beautiful film set and it's such a beautiful experience and I always leave a film and just have this feeling like, well, that was nice. I mean, we'll see what happens, you know. I, I, that, I, and I, and I, really? I mean, it, I think... I guess you hear that from a lot of actors, like, oh, that'll be my last job. You know, you know who I remember saying? I remember when we once came to work in the same car, Joel and I, and I remember him saying something and it was my first job and it was not Joel's first job. You know, and I remember him saying to me, if you don't feel that little spark of joy and that little bit of anxiety when you rock up to work in that car, I think you should think again. And I remember it being my first job, so I had nothing to compare it and I didn't really, really understand what he was saying. But he was so right because I think, you know, that sense of like the loss of something when you think, oh, God, maybe, I mean, I don't know what's next. And and then the kind of anxiety going into a job, which is so helpful to stimulate your process and your work and, and, and you know, give yourself a kick up the butt to, to do what you need to do and go where you need to go with the work. Um, it's so important. Yeah. So um, you did you did all these big movies and then, um, I mean, and even movies like Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a fabulous character. I mean, you're painted gold. I don't know how long it took you to get into that. Was that CG it's, or? No, no, that's paint. Uh, wow. It's all paint. Um, it lasts, doesn't matter how long we scrub it off for, it's still up my nose and in my ears for days to come. Um, in fact, but when I just had done a few camera tests for them, I was um, with a friend back here in LA and I couldn't tell anybody what colour I was, but he was a big Marvel fan. And so he used to constantly, like, and one, one day I remember sitting at lunch with him and he looked in my ear and he said, oh, you're gold. And I said, how did you know? He said, there's leftover paint in your ear. Um, no, no, it's all paint. It takes a while. But I can't complain because, you know, Dave Batista is in makeup for a millennia. So, And you're going back for volume three? Yes. Yes. Hopefully, yeah. You've had just so many incredible experiences already. Is it? Do you make your decisions now based on a role, a film, a director, or is it a combination? It's a combination. Because um, they're all very different. Yeah. Yes, they are. And, I'm, I'm, you know, if I had to say one thing I'm so grateful for, it's the, it's the sort of scope of how different the 
jobs are that have come up for me and the ones I've been, you know, given a chance to play with, this one is always so different from the other. And I believe that that kind of the space in between them is is the growth period, I think, as the actor. I mean, when you do something that you've never done before, you have, like I was saying before, you have that terror and, um, and that's where you really push yourself. Um, but m- more and more for me, the more I grow as an actor, the more the director is important to me and is, is just vital in terms of trust um, and, and in terms of the kind of experience you're going to have on a set, um, the handling of the, of the script, um, of you, of your heart and your body and your soul. You know, it's so important that the person who helms the ship that you kind of jump on and swim out to the middle of the ocean in, um, that, you, that you trust them. You've, um, you're sort of in this new wave of incredibly successful Australians, that are the, I'd say the latest wave, because I've been here 30 years and I've seen a, a lot of waves and it's really thrilling to see so many young actors in their 20s just doing so well. But I'm sure you get the question that I've been getting forever, which is like, what's in the water down there? You know, how do you explain it? Do you have any theories about why you think that there are just so many Australians that do so well for a country so small in in Hollywood? Um, I was going to make a really bad joke about fluoride then, but I didn't. Um, I, you know, my theory that I've sort of had for a little while um, is that it's something to do with isolation. Um the best possible outcome of us being geographically isolated and our and our industry being in it in and of itself whole um, is that we can work for as long as we want to work and I and I often when I think of this analogy though I think of my friends and colleagues who work in theater because I, I suppose the kind of the way that theatre becomes a laboratory for experimenting and failing and moving on from something that didn't work and, and trying it again in a different piece or, um, you know, is, is that you can be in a way protected by that isolation to take risk and to take risks and to be sort of safe in the fact that the things that really work might tour, for instance, the things that don't just throw it away and try again, you know. Um, again, I think of theatre because obviously film is celluloid and it's there forever. But for instance, I think it's so interesting that s- some of our really wonderful theatre directors like Simon Stone, like Benedict, are now working in really mainstream, you know, well, I don't know what now quantifies mainstream Hollywood. I mean, it's sort of like growing at this rapid rate. But are uh, working in this town now, um, you know, the, and these are these are really progressive theatre makers who, you know, ten years ago were making remarkable pieces of work that some of it flew and some of it didn't too. And 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 again, that space in between is where that growth happens for them to sort of develop their skills as a director. And I just think that that happens as actors too. You know, we can we can either sort of hone our craft and drop. Training, I think, is another, you know, a lot of us go to acting school. But then there's sort of like the the 
you know, you can hone your craft in TV. You can do great work on ABC. You can do, you can go and do some time neighbors and home and away and learn some camera skills, you know, and all the while feeling protected and held by your own industry. And then you, if you want to, you jump ship and you come here and you, and you make the pilgrimage and you try and get an agent and you, you know, um, and I also think like, not to blow smoke up our own. Can I say ass on this podcast? Yeah, you can say anything you want. Anything I want. Yeah. Oh my God, don't tell me that. Um, you know, Aussies are kind of brave, you know? I think I'm work- there's a kind of honesty and like, I don't know, just don't beat around the bushness. Just kind of do it. Just smash the workout, see if it works. If it doesn't, you know, so be it. And I think that that kind of mentality which is to some degree I think kind of cultural is really helpful for our making because you know I mean as much as I disagree with this absolutely pervasive tall poppy thing which is not necessarily helpful at all um I mean I like self-deprecating humor as much as the next Australian but when it actually infiltrates your sense of self-worth then I think we need to sort of re-examine culturally what we're doing there but um you know, I think the flip side of that in, in a more sort of like light light way is this sense of, you know, just sort of give it a give it a go. God, I haven't said give it a go for a while. It's kind of a nosy mantra, isn't it? It is though. I yeah. mean and I think it really sort of is helpful for making work. Yeah. You've worked with a lot of Australians that were already successful and you were directed by Simon Baker in Breath as mm. well, which was mm. a beautiful film. Who I just found out he just was nominated and the film was just nominated for an actor and Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, that's and great. I, I, and I was too. My mum would say, why didn't uh, you say you were nominated? Congratulations. You, go, you were nominated for Breath. There we go. We just found out this morning. I think Joel, Joel has been nominated as well and Nicole and, yeah. Oh, it's lovely. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, um, and you work with Rose Byrne and yes. Jackie Weaver. I met her last week and she told me that, you know, how much fun she had playing your mum in Widows. Oh, my God, I love that woman And so you did much. Margot Robbie. You were both in, even though you weren't, like, actually in scenes live action, you mm-hmm. did Peter Rabbit. So mm-hmm. you've, you've had a lot of experience with the other Aussies that are doing well here. Does it yeah. feel like a community? Do you yeah. feel excited when you get to work with them? Yeah. You know, having started with an Aussie movie with Joel and Baz and everybody kind of. Yeah. I mean, there is a really strong community here. I don't, I don't live in LA, so I'm not as tapped into it. I mean, you're based in London. I am, yeah. yeah. But, but there is a really strong community here. But again, it's sort of, I mean, it's just sort of cultural. Like you know, when I hear about success that 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 someone like Margot or Nicole or Rose has, I am so proud of them. You know, and I want that for them. Um, and they. They're, you know, when I think about actresses, Aussie actresses who are doing really well in Hollywood, they're all so different from one another. And yet, you know, I feel a great deal of pride because I think there's a huge amount of grace and compassion with which these women sort of conduct their careers. Um, You know, certainly, for instance, to go back to Loving Kate, which is just apparently what I'm doing for the next few days, um, which is fine with me. um, I always just think about how gracious she is with her success um, and how sort of aware she is too, you know, of, of, of the effect that she has. And, and I think about the pathway that Nicole and Kate and Jackie, people, you know, people like Jackie have carved for us. I mean, it's a really beautiful path to walk along, you know. And I think that my generation of actresses are doing 
our best to really uphold that as well. But we definitely had something beautiful to walk on before us, you know, and that was hard one too, I believe, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm very grateful to them for that. Last question. Um, you've already just finished a movie with Mick Jagger and Donald Sutherland mm-hmm. in Italy. What What's on your bucket list? What's next? What do you want to do? Where do you want to be in the next 10 years? Oh, I mean, well, the next thing I'm going to do is, is an HBO um, series called Lovecraft Country, which I'm very, very excited about, um, which we're shooting here in the States next year. Oh, that's the one created by Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele, yeah, and, and J.J. Um, is producing as well. And we have this wonderful young woman who's show running for us and she's just brilliant. Um, so that's the next job. In the next 10 years, I mean, <laughs> Jenny, like I'm like, I'm sort of going like, what am I doing in the next two hours? Um, <laughs> but I I guess w- when I think about what I'm grateful for thus far and what I would like to keep pursuing, it's something to do with, I guess, to me, the definition of success is sort of access to things that challenge you and are new and keep it really fresh. But also more importantly, I think, than ever, work that is saying something important and I think that we're at a really interesting place as you know as a society not I mean and we could go into this in do a whole nother podcast on it but I think for women in our industry right now with what's happening in the world and what's happening with me too we're at a very interesting point for rapid growth of representation of us on screen. And it's really, really exciting to be a part of it because I think that really things are changing and it's to do with sometimes just simply a numbers game, how many women we can get behind the camera, how many women's work we can get produced, how many stories we can tell about women. And I suppose as an actress, I see my role in this sort of like tide of change being about how many different kinds of women can I portray because it's not just about playing the hero journey either, you know, because I think what's so important for what we do in the creative entertainment business is that we give women the opportunity to see themselves represented in myriad of ways. The good, the bad, the true, the challenging, the unlikable, the likable, the relatable, the unrelatable. And and when I think about the kind of work I want to do, it's sort of smudging all of that up together and, you know going after it and, and seeing what I what sort of truth I can tell, I guess. Well, we'll do this again in 10 years and find out. Let's do right? it. <laughs> Thank you so much My for being pleasure. on Aussies in Hollywood. Pleasure. And congratulations on Widows. Thank you. Thank you. Elizabeth has done so well in Hollywood, but it's lovely to hear she still hung on to that self-deprecating sense of humour and remained so grounded. She sounded practically giddy as she talked about working with Rolling Stone, Mick Jagger, in her next indie film, The Burnt Orange Heresy, and who can blame her? You can also look out for Elizabeth later this year in the HBO series Lovecraft Country from J.J. Abrams and Jordan Peele. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au 
Download the app or look me up on iTunes.